My name is Nathan Newman. I'm one of the pastoral interns here. It's my privilege to bring God's word. This is a hard day. It's a day that requires somberness, reflection, humility, as we look at the cross. It's a day we meditate on a device of death that becomes soon a sign of salvation, the cross. The cross is central to the Christian faith, as Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And for Paul, Christ crucified is more than just a means of salvation. It informs his total vision for the Christian life. This is somber stuff that we've reflected on so far today, but there's no other way that we would approach Good Friday. So today we're going to look back on the long night that he was betrayed that would become the first Good Friday. Just a recap and a little context for those who were not able to make the Maundy Thursday communion service last night. We remember that Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. He's broken bread with them at the Last Supper. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, a foolish dispute arose over who would be the greatest among Jesus' disciples. And as David reminded us last night, John was usually at the center of that discussion. He was zealous, reckless, competitive. He was an explosive fisherman. And soon after, Jesus tells Peter that he will deny him three times before the rooster crows. But the good news that we were reminded is that it's not a call to love Jesus to the end, but a call for us to be loved by Jesus to the end. And we have more of the same in this story that we see. So we're going to look at four stops on this journey to the cross as we follow Jesus on this first Good Friday. We're going to follow him as he goes to the garden and to the courtyard and to the cross and finally to the graveside. So stop number one, look back at your first reading from Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. We see the disciples yawning. Their eyelids are heavy. They were exhausted. And this is only the beginning of a long night. Technically, it's still Thursday, but this is an important stop on Jesus' journey to the cross. In verse 39, we see, as was his custom, Jesus withdrew to pray in preparation for what was to come. Jesus knew that only agony and pain awaited him. And so we see in verse 40, he withdrew. And he instructs his disciples with one simple task. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. The weight of the world was on his shoulders. At this crucial time in his ministry, he needed the support of his closest friends. And in verse 41, we see the text says, Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw away. What an interesting note by Luke. His prayers were within earshot of his disciples. 
And in verse 42, we get a glimpse of that prayer. As it says, he prayed earnestly that the cup would pass him by. As we've read and sung, this cup was the wrath of God. We see that in passages like Isaiah 51 verse 17, which says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand from the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. And as we hear his prayer, we, we see these visceral words that describe the scene, that his sweat becomes like drops of blood falling to the ground. What an incredible window that we get into the humanity of Jesus. And then rising from his prayer, he found his disciples asleep for sorrow. This fear and sorrow that ought to lead us into prayer, instead Satan uses to distract his disciples and they drowse off. You see, the disciples made it to the garden in this story on the journey to the cross with Jesus, but they made it no further. And how often do we do the same? How many friends do we know that are carrying heavy weight on their shoulders, and yet we fall asleep on them? Perhaps they're at a crucial time, a crossroads in their marriage or their job. They're experiencing loneliness in community. How are you, how are we supporting our closest friends in their time of need? And notice here, too, that Jesus gives us a great model. That prayer is not the last resort in supporting our friends, but it is the first resort. And as we see, the disciples illustrate simply that in every respect, men fall away. We forsake God, and ultimately we forsake to our neighbor. And the reality is, as Isaiah 51 says, wake yourself up. You can't wake yourself up. Jesus has to come and stir us from our slumber as he shakes us. He comes to the disciples in verse 46 and says, why are you sleeping? The following verse from Isaiah 51, verse 18, was surely on Jesus' mind as he looked at this groggy bunch of disciples that he had called 51.18, Isaiah 51.18 says this, There is none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There's none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. And taking the cup of God's wrath, Jesus says, as it were, there's one. Not my will, but yours be done. So let's press fast forward as we move through this story. We see verse 47. It says in the next reading that then while he was speaking, one of the twelve, the one who Satan slipped into at the supper and who slipped away at the end of the meal, came. And with a kiss of betrayal, Jesus was betrayed. In Mark's gospel, it tells us, and they all left him and fled. They left him and fled, 
except one. Let's look at stop number two on this journey to the cross, the courtyard, starting in verse 54. We see that Peter followed at a distance, and he was surely recalling Jesus in Matthew 26, himself saying, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Matthew's gospel tells us that Peter went to these secret trials to see them to the end, but made it only as far as the courtyard. We see in verse 56, sitting beside the fire, the first accusation comes from the little girl who says to Peter, weren't you with him? And the words that he thought he'd never say slipped from his lips as he said, I do not know him. In verse 58, we see at least an hour goes by and he's accused again as he sits in the courtyard. And then again a third time, certainly this man was also with him. And in verse 60, Peter replied, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, it says, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And in verse 61, the most striking verse in this passage, we see that it says, The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus, again only a stone's throw away, within earshot of his disciple, hears Peter and looks at him. What a penetrating glance that must have been. You know that feeling when you've disappointed someone. And all of the weight of the last few hours comes crashing down on Peter. And the text says that he remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. See, even Peter He made it a little bit further than the disciples. He made it to the courtyard, but no further. And in many ways, Peter's story mirrors our own weakness. When Jesus needed his closest friend in the world, he denied him to the end. And what are the ways that we deny Christ in our walk? How does Satan lull us to sleep? I don't know about you, but I I have a pit in my stomach just reading this part in the story. But Peter's response is telling. Peter says in verse 62, He went out and wept bitterly. And if I'm being honest, I don't know if I would react like Peter. We try to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes during this last week, this Good Friday. But I don't know if I would weep like Peter weeps. I don't know if I weep over sin in the way that Peter models for us in this verse. Do you weep over your sin like Peter? Fast-forwarding again in the story, with this secret trial in the dead of night reaching its verdict The day begins to break on Friday and the public trials begin. 
Of course, the public trials reached the same verdict that had already been decided in the dead of night, which leads us to our third stop, the cross, in Luke 23, verses 26 through 49. We remember and see the same crowd that shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, only a week earlier, is now shouting, Crucify, crucify him. And beaten and battered after hours of torture, Jesus bears the weight of the cross on his shoulders. He was crucified alongside criminals and begins what we call his seven words. His seven phrases that he says as he hangs on the cross. And three of these seven words are here in Luke's gospel. And I would invite you to consider staying, perhaps, to meditate and reflect on the resources that we have available in the atrium for the following two hours after this service. Perhaps look at the other gospel narratives and the other words that Jesus says on the cross. But for now, let's look at the three that we have here in Luke. We see in Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. To his enemies, he looks on them with compassion and love, forgiving them by becoming a sacrifice, a ransom, once and for all. Love to the end. And to that sinner who was hanging with him on the cross, the thief, he says in verse 43, Truly I say to you, you shall be with me in paradise. This man who stood beside him or who hung beside him on the cross understood the innocence of Christ and he offers a confession of faith. And in return, Jesus grants him eternal life. Love to the end. And finally, in verse 46, Jesus, quoting Psalm 31, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. To his Father in heaven, he says words of absolute confidence. Because this psalm, it ends with thanksgiving and praise. This Confidence is as if the actual deliverance had already been experienced. And finally, Christ in control to the very end returns his spirit to God the Father. You see, Jesus made it to the cross and loved to the end. Love to the end, even death on a cross. Oftentimes, our reflections on Good Friday end there. But Luke has more story to tell. So let's look at the fourth stop on this journey to the cross. As we come to the graveside, in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 50. There was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Now what's the rap on Joseph? This guy who comes into the story, not just this story, but this incident is recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. He's a member of the council. 
This is the Sanhedrin that just condemned and crucified the Messiah. But the text says that he was a righteous man who did not consent with the decision of the council. Not only was he a good and righteous man, but in verse 51 we see that he was waiting for the kingdom. This is the same description that we have of the early saints in Luke's gospel, Simeon and Anna. They bookend Jesus here, his birth and death. And because of his standing in the community, Joseph is described as personally having taken down the body of Jesus from the cross. The rap on Joseph is that he is a good and righteous man. And then we see again in Luke's story, the women appear and they join Zechariah and Elizabeth as bookends, again, to Jesus' birth and death. Look at what Luke says of them in Luke 1, 6. He says of Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And so we see here in this passage, Luke 23, 56, similarly of the women, It says that they prepared spices for the body and then they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandments. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That's the wrap on these women. And this is telling for us because we learn from this fourth and final stop that because Jesus loved to the end, We can love to the end. What's the rap on you? Because Jesus lived a perfect, righteous life, in him you too can be accepted as good and righteous in his sight. As we consider Joseph and the women, we see that their faith in Christ is what enables them to walk blamelessly to walk blamelessly. So how are we to respond to this love to the end? Pictured in Christ and Him crucified. As we saw in the first stop in the garden, the disciples made it. They made it to the garden. Three long years, but no further. God requires perfect obedience. Not even His disciples made it. And then we look at the second stop, the courtyard. One made it, Peter, to the courtyard, but no further. One of Jesus' closest friends couldn't even make it to the end. But on the cross, we see that Jesus made it. That he loved to the end. He loved to the end. He's the only one who perfectly obeyed the law. And the response that's required of us, we see from the centurion. We too must cry, surely this man was innocent. As one commentator put it, while he's judged as unrighteous, he is vindicated as the righteous one. So for the unbeliever, This offer of God's grace is available immediately 
today. There's good and bad news. The bad news is that no one else made it to the end. Not his disciples, not even Peter. Jesus is the only one who made it to the end. And that's the good news. Because at the same time, you can make it to the end in Christ. And for you, believer, make it your resolve today to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not just today or during Holy Week each year, but every moment of every hour. As we're reminded to pray not only as a last resort, but a first resort. As we are told to weep over our sin, like Peter. And as we learn from the fourth and final stop on this journey to the cross, because Jesus made it, we can love to the end. We can walk blamelessly. So walk blamelessly this day, shed your grave clothes, and learn to live in the righteous robes that have been purchased by Christ through his death on the cross. His love to the end. Amen. Let's pray.